When we think about what is occurring today in the religious world in America, if you look at the statistics, at least 80% of the American people claim to believe in God. On any given Sunday, about 44% of the people will be in some kind of house of worship. Why, why do you have that difference right there? And furthermore, some of the larger Protestant organizations in this country are practically wringing their hands over what is happening to them. In June of last year, there was a convention in Indianapolis of what they claim to be the largest Protestant organization in America, claiming a membership of 16 million people. And then they said on any given Sunday, about 6 million show up for church services. No wonder the new president of that organization from a church just out of Atlanta would say that organization is a sinking ship unless something is done. What is happening to religion in America? Well, there have been many efforts to secularize this country, as we all know. The media has been involved with it for a long, long time. Education has uh, been a contributor, at least higher education, to the indifference toward spiritual things as, as the Word of God has been under constant attack. Evolution has been taught as a science rather than the philosophy that it really is, and the faith of many people have um, or has been undermined. I want to talk tonight about something that's, that's revealed here in the New Testament of Jesus Christ. It's the church. Any sincere and honest person who will read the New Testament will tell you that it talks about a church. In fact, about 118 times it talks about it. And we know by reading the New Testament that the church that's revealed in the New Testament didn't originate with man. Now, any number of religious organizations have a human origin. And some of them are easily identified because they even have a human nomenclature. But the one revealed in the New Testament did not start in this country. It did not start in England or some other country. It started in the city of Jerusalem over in Palestine back in the first century. And it started before that in the mind of Almighty God. Please listen to this statement found in Ephesians 3, 10, and 11, the apostle. Some other country, it started in the city of Jerusalem over in Palestine back in the first century. And it started before that in the mind of Almighty God. Please listen to this statement found in Ephesians 3, 10, and 11. The apostle said, To the intent that now under the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is where the church revealed in the New Testament originated. In the mind of an all-wise God. 
Now we know for a fact when we read the New Testament that Jesus promised to build a church. It's there in Matthew 16, 18. You've heard that many times. I just remind you of it. After the Lord had raised the question relative to his identity, they were up in Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, whom do men say that I the son of man am? And it's so interesting that there were different answers. Not everyone understood the deity of Jesus Christ. Not everyone understood that he was Emmanuel, our God with us. In fact, the disciples said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you are Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He said, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, or Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. There is an inseparable connection of the Lord's identification and the church that he promised to build. Unless you and I grasp the fundamental fact that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, then we may have trouble appreciating the promise. I will build my church. But when we see that correlation, then we take seriously this promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you keep reading your New Testament and it soon becomes evident that what he promised to do and what God Almighty had purposed became a reality. You get into the book of Acts in your New Testament And you start reading about the church as a reality. It it, it was actually existing. What I want us to do in this particular study is to go to the book of Colossians and see the connection of Jesus as a creator and his church that he has created. And to see the connection in the preeminent position that Jesus has in the created universe and the relationship that he has to his church. And, and what is absolutely essential if any religious group of people can really claim to be that church that God purposed and that his son promised to build. And it'll only take one thing as we're going to see. I briefly remind you that this little book of Colossians, only four short chapters in length, has as its theme the preeminence of Jesus Christ. While back in the first century, as surely as in the 21st century, there were religious folk who thought they had a special insight into knowledge. They called them the Gnostics, the knowing ones. They didn't know much unless they understood that Jesus Christ is preeminent in the created universe and he's preeminent in the church that he promised to build. So in Colossians 1, starting in verse 12, the apostle said, Giving thanks unto the Father, who hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, 
whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were made or created by him and he is before all things and by him all things consist or some translations say they're held together. Now, you, you look at the created universe. It either had intelligence that produced it or non-intelligence that made it. And I have been asked to believe that a rock created the universe, that non-intelligence made it. And I have real trouble believing that, that there's too much evidence of order and design for me to be led to believe that there was no designer, that there was no lawgiver. So I start looking at the position that Jesus has to the created universe. And he is the one by whom Almighty God brought everything into existence. Out there in that unseen realm, principalities and powers in those heavenly realms. I mean, he's the creator. And furthermore, he is the sustainer. Verse 17, by him all things consist or they are literally held together. You know, it's an interesting thing to try to figure out what keeps this universe functioning. For example, the sun, 93 million miles out there, consuming energy per second at a rate that staggers the imagination. That's been my experience that if you have a fire, unless you have fuel going to it, it's going to go out. So the question is, through all of these centuries, what has fueled the sun? I know there have been various theories. When I was getting ready to go into graduate school, we had a, an exam that had a question about, you know, the, the amount of energy being consumed based upon the sun burning gases. I understand some theories now have to do with atomic energy. But whatever the theory, there's something that keeps that sun functioning out there. And there is something that keeps this universe going. And the answer is in Colossians 1.17. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one by whom Almighty God brought it into existence, is the one by whom it continues or it is sustained. So the source of this universe is Jesus Christ. And the sustainer of this universe is Jesus Christ. Now you look at the universe and everything, so far as I know is functioning precisely according to the purpose of its creation. As far as I know, that moon out there is doing exactly what the Lord created it to do. And if it did not have those uh, influences on the tides of the oceans, they obviously would become just huge, stagnant bodies of water. But thanks be to that moon, those tides are working, and so there is a movement among that water rather constantly, moon doing what it was created to do. We have ecologists today that are real concerned that they say you're going to get nature out of balance. Well, the question is, who balanced it in the first place? Many years ago, there was a man at the time, head of the British Academy of Sciences, A. Creasy Morrison, wrote a little book entitled, Man Does Not Stand Alone. I've read that little treatise two times. It's a very interesting little document. And, and he shows the interdependence of the animal and vegetable kingdoms, like the tree absorbing 
carbon dioxide and expelling oxygen. And with us, it's the opposite of the process. And he finally argues, if, if you believe that everything came from just one cell, how do you explain something like that? These, these two kingdoms and their interdependence. So if, if a person, the ecologist, you know, interested in our home, if the ecologist is so interested in getting nature out of balance, the question is who balanced it in the first place? And those of us who believe the testimony of the Word of God know who balanced it in the first place, and that's Jesus Christ. But now, in this created universe, everything functions according to creation with two exceptions. And those two exceptions are sinful angels for one and sinful people for the other. Now, we know angels have sinned, 2 Peter 2, 4. Very plainly says, the angels that sin, God cast down to hell, to Tartarus. The only time that word's found in all the New Testament to identify the place where God is confining these sinful angels. Jude emphasizes basically the same thing. They're being kept in chains of darkness under the judgment of the great day. So God didn't create those sons of glory to become rebels, but some of them obviously have left their estate They have left their God-ordained place. Now, what about people? You go back to the beginning, Genesis 1, 27, God said, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. God did not create us to be rebels. He did not create us to be ungodly. He created us to reflect the glory of the Creator. And yet sin is missing the mark. I mean, you know, that's the meaning of our English word sin, to miss the mark. And so here is God's great ideal, the mark, if you please, people to reflect the glory of the creator. And here are sinful people so very much removed from that ideal. Now that brings us to Colossians 1.18. And we're going to see that this Jesus Christ over God's creation, preeminent over the created universe, is also potentially preeminent in the hearts and lives of people. And so the apostle said, after this declaration by him, all things consist or they they are held together. And he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now please watch this next statement. That in all things he might have the preeminence. Now there's no question he's preeminent in the created universe. Now in this created universe, there are some people who are acknowledging the preeminence of Jesus Christ. They are respecting his position in a spiritual relationship. And who are those people? Well, you see the word, it's church. That word, church. And you know the meaning of the word translated church, the called out. So here are people who obviously have been called out of something. And you go back up to verses 12 and 13 and you see that out of which they have been called giving thanks unto the Father who hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath 
transferred us or translated us, conveyed us, some translations say, into the kingdom of his dear son. There is a realm, and I'm going to use the word spiritual to distinguish it from the material. There is a spiritual domain, if you please, identified by the concept of darkness, where the devil keeps people's minds deceived and blinded and and keeps them from understanding and appreciating and obeying the truth. But now here's some people that have been called out of that. And we've already noted the other night the power that God uses to call folks out of that realm of darkness. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, Paul said, He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here are men and women who hear the glad tidings of good things. The gospel, good news, that God loves a sinful world. And God wants to rescue the perishing. God wants to save people. And he sent his son to be the savior. He sent his son to pay the sacrifice for human sinfulness. And Jesus paid that sacrifice in his death on the old rugged cross. People start hearing that and they say in their minds and hearts, you mean God loves us that much? You've got it. You mean God let his son die for me? Exactly right then I'm indebted to that God. Amen, and the angels could say it. Eternally indebted to that God. And so people start listening to that and starts touching their hearts. And they start realizing, you know, the devil has had me in darkness, darkness. And I didn't really know where I was going. I I might imagine that I could see the end, but I really couldn't. I I couldn't see that I was being denied life now. I I, I was just existing. I didn't have a quality of existing that, that really gave me meaning and purpose and joy and peace and hope. I mean, the devil has kept me in darkness. And, And furthermore, he was controlling even my destiny. And if he had kept me in that darkness, I would have been eternally condemned to hell with him. So people start listening to the word of the Lord. It starts touching their minds and their minds commence to resolve to renounce the devil, to turn away from him and to turn to a loving Lord that loved them enough to leave the beauty and security of God's glory, to come to this earth to hear the blasphemies of people, to come to be rejected by hard-hearted people and eventually brutalized through a scourging and nailed to a cross to suffer and bleed and die. They say, if the Lord loves me that much, I must let him be the Lord of my life. The light of the world I accept as my light to lead me out of the darkness of the devil. And so they commence to think, You know, this message, this gospel, it tells me I must be a believer. And I do believe. I I, I will trust my Lord with my soul and my eternal destiny. And I'm going to turn to him with this penitent mind. And like he said, you confess me and I'll confess you. I'll gladly confess him. 
And like he said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. I'll gladly do that because I want Jesus to be my Savior and I want to be delivered from this world. So when people go through that process, they have been called by the gospel, that power of God to save us, Romans 1.16. They have been called by the gospel out of the power of darkness and in the process of obeying the gospel, they are conveyed over into a kingdom, a different spiritual domain where Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And over there in that spiritual domain, he is the head. Now that's written, right? Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church. Now we know what the church is. These called out people. What does it mean? He is the head. Well, I'll illustrate it like this. Do you know who the head football coach is up at Georgia? Now, see, I'm from Tennessee, but I can tell you who the head football coach is. And if you don't know, if you're from Georgia, if you'll see me after the service and don't let anybody hear you ask me, I'll tell you. And to keep everybody happy down here, do you know who the head football coach is over at Georgia Tech? I don't, but I know a man who once was, but you can tell me. What do you mean head football coach? He's the man in charge. Now, he may have given the fella up in the booth a lot of uh, leeway, but I'll guarantee you one thing. If they score a touchdown, they're going to be looking for the head man to say, shall we go for one? And, you know, a lot of times that's what he does. Go for one. And uh, he's the man in charge. And furthermore, if they start having a losing season, who's the fella that has to go? the head man. I mean, we we understand that. Do we know who the head of a corporation is like the head of General Motors? He's the man in charge, right? Oh, he can have all of these assistants and all of these counselors, but I'll tell you one thing, he's the man in charge. What about head of state? Have any problem there? If you visit the restored office of former President Harry Truman over in Missouri, and see the sign that he had on his desk when he was up in Washington. The buck stops here. Yeah, he's head of state. He's the man in charge. We understand that. Now, why then would we have any problem understanding Jesus being the head of the church? What do you mean? He's the one in charge. Now, please, I beseech you, Listen very carefully to this observation. I respect the Holy Spirit of God. I believe he's a part of what the Bible identifies as the Godhood or the Godhead. In fact, Peter said that in Acts chapter 5 when he said to Ananias, Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied unto men but unto God. So I honor the Holy Spirit. He's the one that inspired this book right here, directed the folks who wrote this book right here. But please listen carefully. The Holy Spirit is not the head of the church. Jesus is. So if a man out in Richland, Texas says, well, now, about nine years ago or whatever, the Holy Spirit told me right there, that we shouldn't be objecting to using mechanical instruments of music 
in worship. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was the head of the church, not the Holy Spirit. Now, another observation, and I beseech you, please listen carefully. I honor Moses. The law came by Moses. Moses was the leader of God's people under that Levitical system, under that old covenant. But the head of the church is not Jesus and Moses. Jesus is the head of the church. Now, I couldn't be a part of one of the largest religious organizations on earth today because they claim the church has two heads. Jesus is the heavenly head, but he has a vicar on earth. And when the earthly head is speaking, as they say, ex cathedra, or from the chair, then his dictums and decrees are just as binding as the heavenly head. I could never believe that and believe Colossians 1.18 because the Bible says very plainly, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And if you're reading that in your Bible, I promise you that's exactly the way it reads. Now, I must introduce a problem. So I want to move from that emphasis on Jesus being the head of these called out people to a problem area. Have to be honest with this. Where's the head of the church? Well, turn over to Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. And here's the answer. If then you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Set your affection or set your mind on things which are above and not on things which are upon the earth. Now, where is the head of the church? He's in heaven. So we've got a problem. I know a part of his church is on this earth. How can he in heaven be head of the church which is on earth? It's really not a problem. I I could ask you this question and you'd get the answer just like that. Is there any way that you know that you can have a measure of control of things on this earth after you leave here? You say, everybody knows that, man. You write a will. You got it. You write a will. And if that will is properly written and properly administered, I mean, you can be out there in eternity and you can still be having a measure of control of things on this earth. You don't have to have a degree in law to understand that. It's just common knowledge. Okay, with that in mind, I'm going to take it to Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot unto God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament. Some translations say new covenant. For this cause, he's the mediator of the new covenant or the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were on the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of the inheritance. For where a testament is a force, there must of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. 
Now I ask you, is that the way it is? Is the Bible speaking correctly? Well, certainly. Now, I don't know if you have a will. I have a will, you know, my last will and testament. And when I get ready to leave the country, one of the last things I do, I put that right on the, I put that folder on the kitchen table and it's got W-I-L-L underlined about three times. Now, this, this is it. But you know, I've changed that will three or four times. May change it again. I have that privilege. It's my will, my last will and testament. But now when I die, I'll not change it anymore. It's going to be just like that. And if it's properly administered, I'll be out there, but still having a measure control down here. Now, where is Jesus? He's, he's in heaven. Who is he? The head of the church. I brought a copy of his last will and testament with me tonight. I've got it right here. The last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I submit to you, that's the way. He is now functioning as the head of the church. And that is the only way that he functions as the head of his church. He's in heaven, but here's his will. Consequently, if we want to know how to become a part of his church, we better go to the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've had people, I mean good folks, to sincerely argue against obeying the Lord's command to be baptized by saying, was Abraham a friend of God? Well, James says he was, James chapter 2. Read me in the Bible where he was ever baptized. I wouldn't even pretend to start to do that. I just try to calmly and carefully explain to that person. Abraham lived under the patriarchal dispensation. He didn't have the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, but I do. And in that last will and testament of Jesus Christ, I learn that I become a part of his body, his called out body of people as a believer by repenting and being baptized. And then the Lord puts me in the church. You have not heard me at any time in this meeting and you will not hear me say, we want you to join our church. My brethren don't talk like that. You won't hear Jason preach like that. We, we want you to join our church. Because you can't join the Lord's church like men join churches that they have built. It takes an act of God to put you into it. And so in Acts 2.47, the inspired historian Luke says about those people that had gladly received the word of God and were baptized because Peter had told them, repent and be baptized for remission of sins. They that gladly received the word were baptized. And the same day there was added unto them about 3,000 souls. And then this statement in verse 47, and the Lord added to the church such as should be saved or those that were being saved. I pick up 1 Corinthians 12, start reading about the church as the body of Christ, get down to about verse 18, and I hear the apostle say, God set the members in the body, every one of them, as it hath pleased him. And one among many beautiful things about the Lord's church, it takes an act of God to put you into it. 
Isn't that wonderful that God would so work in your life that, that he makes you a part of the body of his son? Now, I've already mentioned, and I'll just remind you, if I could read in the last will and testament of Jesus Christ to be saved, people need to give their heart to Jesus and pray the sinner's prayer. I'd preach that. But I hadn't found that in my New Testament. And like you, I've read this New Testament through a few times. My last, my Lord's last will and testament. But I've never found that. Well, if it's not in the New Testament, where do people get that? The doctrines and commandments of men, Colossians chapter 2, 21 and 22. I, I mean, that, that came from, from man's opinion. And it's a unique way of saying, you don't have to be baptized. Just, you know, give your heart to Jesus and pray this prayer. Although that's a human activity. And sometimes, as we noted last night, people say, you're not saved by works. Well, prayer is a work. Are we or are we not saved by praying the sinner's prayer? That's human opinion. Human doctrine. Takes God's action, put you in the church of his son. Isn't that beautifully simple and simply beautiful? Now, what about worship? Who's going to tell us how to worship in this church? Shall people? I I tell you what I like. I like this. I like that. Oh, is worship designed for what we like? Is it designed to entertain us? Is it designed so that, that we leave, as one fellow said, feeling real good? You know, a James Brown day. Feel good. And so, man, we've been excited and, and we've just had our spirit stirred. Our, our emotions have just been stirred. We've cried a lot and we've done this and we've done that. And oh, how spiritual we are. You know, a lot of people need a good understanding of the biblical concept of spiritual. It's a good Bible word. But it literally means, at least the word translated spiritual, literally means things that have their origin with God and are consistent with his character. It's not something that originates with me. It originates with God if it's real spirituality. Now I'm going to take you to Colossians 3.16. And this is a very interesting statement in light of what we've been emphasizing, that Jesus functions as the head of the church through the New Testament, his last will and testament. Okay, now we're thinking about worship. How will we worship as the called out body of the Lord's people where he serves his head. Watch this first statement in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What? Yeah, the word of Christ. Why? Because he's the head of the church. Anybody can see that. Why didn't he say, well... You know, let the word of Moses dwell in you richly because Moses had never been the head of the church of the Lord. Now he was out there with that church in the wilderness, Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, but not in the church that Jesus built. And so let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing. See that? This is the Lord's. Last will and testament. Singing 
with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Is that very difficult? Singing? That is a specific activity, right? Singing with grace in your hearts. Now, if you read a parallel passage, Ephesians 5, 19, he says, uh, making melody in your heart to the Lord. God wants singing accompanied. There's no doubt about that. But he identifies that with which he wants singing accompanied, and it's your heart. Not a piano or an organ or a brass band. He wants it accompanied by the human heart. And to refuse to do that for whatever reason is questioning the authority of Jesus Christ as the head of the church. The head of the church, when his word is dwelling in us richly, tells us to sing 